31. I forgot all about bringing notes to give to the guys to put it up on. So you're going to have to go old school and you're going to have to read it out of an actual Bible. And thanks to Pam Quilla, I left my glasses at home. So Pam uh, uses reading glasses that are very close to mine. So this is the most masculine pair of glasses she had. So if anybody has a problem with that, just see me afterwards. Psalm 131 is what's called a psalm of ascent. The psalms of ascent start in chapter 120 of Psalm, and they go through Psalm 134. And the psalms of ascent are ascents are psalms that they would. It was like a playlist for the Jewish. You know, you ever gone on a road trip before? And you go on a road trip and you load your playlist uh, down because you want it. My my daughter runs marathons, and she will get out there and she will get playlists, ideas from people to play. And she'll have this extensive playlist. You've been on that road trip where you have a playlist. Well, this is the playlist of the Jewish people. As they are going to Jerusalem three times a year, they go up to Jerusalem to worship for these festivals. And this is what they sang. These are the songs. This is their playlist that they had as they went up to Jerusalem. Psalm 131 is... In my opinion, a, a very unique one wasn't actually the message that I'd planned, uh, but last week as I was praying, just felt the Lord draw me to this afresh, and so wanted to bring this for you today. Psalm 131, read with me or follow with me. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes, they're not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh, Israel. Oh, church. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Pray with me. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for, Lord, for the reality that Your Word brings into our lives. Thank You, first and foremost, for the reality that Your Word points us to the finished work of Jesus Christ, to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, to this wonderful good news that we are not, as we sang and have sung already this morning, we are not left on our own as your children saved by the wonderful grace of Jesus Christ. We're grateful this morning. Lord, I pray that you would both help me in my weakness to say and share something from your word that will be helpful. And I pray for those listening that you'd open ears to hear truth in a way that can bring life giving change to them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You could sum up this morning this text. I will sum it up in a very brief phrase so you'll know where I'm, what I'm basically saying this morning. This is what preachers call a proposition statement, a prop statement. It's good to have that right up front. Tell people, this is what I'm going to say. It, this is talking about a humbled, resting heart that puts all its hope in God. A humbled, resting heart. Now, 
In this case, I think it warrants having an anti-prop statement, if I could say it that way. The anti-prop statement would be this. A proud, exalted, complaining, grasping, discontented heart loses all hope. Do you ever ever have things go on in your life that you just don't get? Things that happen that you just, to this day, you think about, what was going on there? What was happening? Things that left your faith challenged. I know you probably do, and I know the church has experienced similar things, particularly in this past year. Challenges that you wonder, where was God in the midst of that? Last month, I had a, an opportunity to spend a day with a very close friend of mine, Dan, a guy named Dan Schumann. We called him Captain Dan because he was a Southwest pilot. He was a captain of a Southwest uh, plane. And Dan was an amazing guy. Dan was, uh, uh, he was one of the most fit guys you'd ever find in your life. He was uh, um, primarily a mountain biker and surfer. I surfed, so we had a great time surfing together. But he was a mountain biker, in which, as you can tell from my profile, I am not. But this guy was incredible. He would go mountain biking. He, w- he would fly. He would come home from flying, and he would get on his bike, and he would head up the mountains. Now, I'm in the foothills of Pasadena, so right behind us are about 7,000-foot mountains. Dan would take off and he would ride straight up the mountains and then he would go across the mountains all the way. He would come back down. He had been, by the time he got home, had gone about 40 miles straight up and across. And he would, the amazing thing about Dan is he would always carry a tow rope with him because he'd always find somebody on the trail struggling. And he would throw them a tow rope and help them get up a difficult section of the trail. And that's just the kind of guy who was so fit. He was one of the most joyful, uh, mature men of God that I have ever met. He had so much joy in the Lord and just a wonderful servant in the church. He lived with us uh, for a season of his life. Uh, I was privileged to introduce him, encourage him to marry a certain gal in the church. Well, I don't normally do that, but in this case, he was. we were very close. And so God was very good to him, and he was an amazing example. Then in 2007 or so, Dan was traveling home after coming back from a trip and was in a severe car accident and received significant brain damage, barely survived the situation, and lives to this day where he can't remember your name. He can't remember hardly anything. He looks very normal, but his mental capacity is gone. There's one thing that remains, joy. (laughs) Joy and a love for Jesus. But to this day, I think about Dan and I think, Lord, what were you thinking? Why Dan, of all people? Why? You know, (laughs) we would say, why anybody? But for me, it was like, Lord, why? Why would this happen? What What could possibly be your purpose and letting something so drastic as this happen. Can you you relate to that? I'll bet you everybody in the room today can relate to something in your life that's unresolved. See, to this day, as I was with Dan last month, 
and and he wouldn't be able to recognize me until until I mean he would recognize my face a little bit, but he couldn't remember my name or any of our history. You you've got things like that. And you ask yourself, Lord, what was that all about? What's going on here? Well, in this passage, this is what David is saying. He's saying, there's just so much I don't get. But Lord, I trust you. I put my hope in you. This is worshipers. David wrote this for worshipers who are ascending up to worship. And as they ascend, they're reminding themselves. And it's not about my ability to understand. It's about hope and trust in God. This is the heart cry of every believer ascending to worship. Kyle and Delish translate these, the commentators uh, that uh, uh, I was looking at at one point, translate this first word, have. It's, they, they even put it in their English translation just like that, have. It, it's just a, a word that means God, but it's, it's an emphatic. In fact, where it's placed in the text, it puts it in an emphasis, and it's, that's why translators say, Oh, God. They're just crying out to God. Oh, God, you, you've been there, right? Have, oh, God, what are you doing? What's going on? Oh, Lord, would you reveal yourself? The psalm begins with this emphatic cry to God. Spurgeon said this about this little chapter. He said, it is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. Shortest to read, longest to learn. It's all about dethroning yourself and enthroning God. Sanctification in a nutshell. Now let me remind you, let me, let me reintroduce you to David who's writing this. David is having a very personal interaction with God. He's humbling himself before God. He's, he's doing that as opposed to being burdened down with all the weight of great matters or things that he can't understand personally. This is the reality of the battle we face constantly in our lives to constantly kneel at the feet of Jesus and not enthrone ourselves. So I want to talk about three things this morning out of this passage. Number one, I want to talk about the heart of the king. Number two, I want to talk about the soul of a child. And number three, the hope that endures. So let's look at the heart of the king. First of all, look at this psalm and think about who's writing this psalm. Psalms written by David. He is the king. He is the king. He is the greatest king that Israel's ever had in the history of Israel. He was a a significant, gifted leader. He was arguably one of the greatest military generals in human history. He was an excellent musician, you guys will be glad to know. He was He had profound character and he was a man of great integrity. He knew and he understood hardship. This great king understood what it it would mean to be under hardship. He had to run for 10 years of his life after being anointed by Samuel. After after Samuel anoints him, pours oil on his head and says, You are the king of Israel. You're the next king of Israel. He has to run for the next... Ten years, knowing he's been anointed king, and he has to run from Saul, who is the current king, who's trying to kill him, of all things. Go figure. 
He's running, but never takes vengeance into his own hands. He comes oftentimes within a hair's breadth of losing his life. He's often, his close relationships, he experiences betrayal on a normal basis. He has to endure people cursing him to his face. He has to wait long periods of time before seeing God move. His wife and kids at one point were stolen from him. Anybody here experienced that? Your kids just, wife and kids just stolen? Well, David experienced that. His enemies, he, he had to leave and go to his enemy's homeland because the enemy's homeland was safer than his own country. That, that tells you a little bit about the challenge that he was under. His best friend was killed. More than once, he has to grieve the loss of a child. He unjustly loses his job. His own son tries to kill him, and he lives and experiences the consequences of his own sin in his life. This guy understood hardship. He understood things where he would say to God, like he has in Psalm 130, would, Lord, I don't get it, but you know what? I'm just going to bow myself at your feet and trust you, even though I don't get it. And to this day, Lord, I don't understand all that you're doing. No cynicism, no bitterness. He expresses profound humility. This is amazing. He sets his questions at the feet of God. To understand the psalm, you've got to understand David. David represents kind of like an Old Testament Christian. (laughs) If you think of David, just think of an Old Testament version of a born-again Christian. That's kind of the, the kind of guy he was. Paul in Acts 13.22 says of David, the Lord says of David, in, as Paul quotes, quotes God, He is a man after my own heart who will do all my will. That was God's opinion of David. A man after my own heart who will do all my will. Part of David's story is his unwillingness to take matters into his own hands and to live his life differently. David is proclaiming in this psalm this willingness to humble himself, to walk humbly. He knows that God knows him intimately. Psalm 139, if you read Psalm 139, you remember that? Where David just says, you know my every being. You know my coming, you going. You know everything about me. David's aware of that. He's not deceived. He doesn't realize, He doesn't think he's hiding from God in any way. This, this great king starts with his own heart. That's his starting point. Well, his starting point's God, but for him personally, he's starting with his own heart. I want to understand my own heart. I want to humble my heart before God. Beginning with yourself. Spurgeon said, what the heart desires The eyes look for. Where the desires run, the glances usually follow. That's what he's saying in verse 1. Lord, my heart's not proud, nor are my eyes lifted up. There's a significant connection there between heart and eyes. Heart and actions. You want to know why you do what you do? Look no further than your own heart. Look no further than down in there. Out of the abundance of the heart, what? What? The mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, 
you live your life. That's what he's saying. And David is this Old Testament, New Testament, born-again man who understands it all starts right here in my own heart. And he understands that my actions, my eyes will follow what my actions, uh, what my heart is desiring. My eyes will look at it. So like David, we see Paul. You want to look into the New Testament. You see Paul dealing with the same things. Paul himself in Romans 12, 3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has given me. You remember Paul. You know Paul. You remember the passage in Corinthians where Paul just says, I was uh, shipwrecked. I was beaten X amount. I mean, he goes through this, this list of things that happened in his life, beaten and almost on the point of death and uh, shipwrecked. And oh, he goes through this incredible list. And yet Paul says, think of myself. I want to think of myself. I want you to think of yourself soberly so as to have sound judgment. This takes real grace to be able to recognize our hearts, recognize our own limitations. And it's very unlike our culture today. And you would know that. Well, I think you would know that. I know that because I live in Disneyland territory. And I think David or Disney. You know, we're, here's the culture we live in. Disney. It's not. Disney philosophy permeates everything in our culture. You may not think this, but it permeates everything in our culture. You know, you've heard it before. Just believe. You know, if you ever go to one of Disney's fireworks display, it's believe and oh, it's wonderful. It feels so good. It's yeah, just believe. Believe in what? Believe in yourself. Just if you just believe in yourself, you'll do great. In fact, if you just believe in yourself, you'll get everything you ever wanted. Anybody, anybody recognize the hollowness? Now, we all listen to that stuff and we all say, that's a, a crock. <laughs> there is absolutely no truth. But yet, it feels so good and you just want to believe. As if somehow believing in just anything out of the blue works. That's the culture we live in. We're bombarded by this every day. With David... We have something different. We see the heart of a king who is humbled, who recognizes, no, it's not about me. It's not about what I can accomplish. It's about the grace of God and what he has done for us. And we see his life demonstrating that reality. But then we see this heart of this king is truly humble, but he even goes one step further. And we see the heart of the king, but then we see the soul of a child. The great king saw himself as a little child. David never, never saw himself as something great. Well, probably I take it back. He probably did at one point where the Bible says he stayed home from war. Started to get a little bit full of himself. Stayed home from going to war and that's when he fell into sin with Bathsheba and killed one of his good friends. The one time he, well, he, he, I'm sure he would say he stumbled many times like all of us would. But in this one recorded instance, this one giving in to that selfishness once 
cost David dearly for his entire life. And so David just sees himself as a child. He's responding now. He's just saying, you know what? I'm just a child. My soul is like a weaned child. This has a lot of implications, especially back in the, uh, in the day. Back then in the day when David was alive, children uh, uh, nursed quite, quite a bit longer into life. And so to wean a child was a much more complicated, challenging affair. You can imagine what it might be life. And, and there would initially be much fussing and demanding until the process was over and the child could rest on his mother without demanding immediate satisfaction. So are you connecting the dots there? I mean, when you stop and think of it, connect the dots that, that when you're as a weaned child and you're not demanding that immediate satisfaction, which is completely the opposite, again, of our culture, wanting immediate satisfaction. That's, that's what our society and culture is all about. Well, this has significant spiritual implications for us, too. Paul faced the same problem among the churches. In Hebrews 5.12, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. He's saying, why are you still nursing? <laughs> you shouldn't be doing that. You should be, you should be teachers by now, and yet you're holding on to something You're looking for that immediate satisfaction. And it's not bringing life. It's not bringing grace to you. In 1 Corinthians 3, 2, he's talking to the Corinthians. He says, I fed you. Uh, By the way, Paul, I'm not not suggesting Paul wrote Hebrews 5, 12. But he did write, write Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3, 2. I fed you with milk, not solid food. For you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready. Paul's saying, I'm just having to nurse you along. You're not even ready for solid, you're not even ready for solid food. You just need milk. And, and, and this, is not a, this is not a flattering assessment. He's not saying, oh, I'm so proud of you that you're willing to drink milk. No, he's not. This is not a flattering assessment. He's saying, this is to your shame. You're just still needing milk when you ought to be, you ought to be eating solid food. These scriptures indicate a process. It's a process not necessarily easy or speedy. We oftentimes, some of us, fight against this process. And it's a heavenly Father leading us through a process as opposed to remaining nursing babes. As, and, and as, as immature believers, it's all about our desires and feelings. It's all about living the Disney culture our need for gratification. But as we grow older, the Father wants to wean us. Hebrews chapter 12, which I just read, if you were to read uh, in Hebrews uh, chapter 12, uh, after chapter 5 there, you find God is a Father who disciplines you for your good. He is training you up and raising you up. He weans us off. Spurgeon said this about the subject, Blessed are those afflictions which subdue our affections, which wean us from self-sufficiency, which educate us into Christian manliness, which teach us to love God not merely when He comforts us, but when He tries us. See, anybody 
Anybody can, anybody can do well when things are going well. You remember what Jesus said? If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? It's when you love people that don't love you, that's your credit. That's similar to what we're saying here. What, what Spurgeon is relating to is that anybody can do well when things are going well, but the real challenge is when things don't go well, and then what do you do with it? How do you live your life at that point? That's when you know, I'm not just drinking milk here, getting solid food. God is feeding me something. If I'll just eat it, <laughs> if I will submit to this process, God will do something that will produce maturity and grace. You think it's been a hard year? Well, it has. Rejoice, for God is doing something in you. Doing something in you as a church. Doing something that will bring maturity and grace and help in a time of need. And it will help you to the point that when you are interfacing with people in your community, you're going to meet people who are needy. People who are sitting there, just like you this morning, thinking, what was going on? Why did that happen in my life? I don't get it. And they'll need someone to come along with a gospel truth, with something that will blow their minds, so to speak, as they begin to recognize God's at work here. God's doing something. You're in this community for a reason. Young people, you're in your schools for a reason. You're not just there going to school. Get out of school so that you can pick a college and do your thing. No, you're there for a reason, for a gospel reason. Because God wants to mature you and He wants to bring people into your life who you will look at and you will say, I know the answer to this. I can, I can just prophesy to some of you young people today. You have had conversations at school and you would say, I know the answer to the, what this person's asking or talking about right now. The question is, will we be bold enough to bring truth in those situations? What is exactly a weaned child like? Well, the weaned child gradually breaks the habit of seeing his mother just as a means of satisfaction. So us, for us, we no longer look to God just for what we can get from Him, but trust in His grace and His provision. We desire God for Himself, not as a means of just satisfying our wishes. It's a mature trust. To be a weaned child is to rest contentedly patiently, hopefully, in the Lord. Am I content with knowing God knows my heart? Or do I want to make sure other people see me and, and acknowledge me? Am I looking to get attention or affirmation from other people? Or am I, am I looking to God to meet those needs in my life? Am I looking for recognition, recognition and acknowledgement? Or trusting God for those things? Am I constantly exalting my own opinions? Or am I looking to God's opinion as the overarching reality in my life? The Christian life is not a neurotic dependency. It's childlike trust. We do not cling to God out of fear, insecurity, or panic. We come freely out of faith in love to a father. Peterson, in his book that he wrote on the Psalm of Ascent, said this, God does not reduce us to a set of Pavlovian reflexes so that we mindlessly worship and pray and obey on signal. He establishes us 
with a dignity in which we're free to receive His words and His gifts and His grace in our lives. This isn't just programming here. This isn't just, you don't go through this and think, oh, well, this is just hypocrisy. I really don't feel this way. What I really feel like is going to Disneyland. No, that's not what he's saying. It's not, it's not like he's saying, just program yourself. No, he's saying the reality is life doesn't always feel good. And it's in those moments that you discover your heart for the Lord, for his kingdom and his truth, this childlike trust. And then we realize that ultimately it comes down, as David says here, as he is walking through this and he is personally embracing this childlike trust, as he's, as he's looking to himself to say, this isn't about me. This isn't about something that I am. This is about worshiping God. This is about knowing Him. This is not... We can respond negatively in two different ways in these things. We can see a challenge and try to take control. None of you, I'm sure, can relate to that. Uh, you know, we... But that's a, a response commonly. Take control. Just get control of the situation. Start manipulating, trying to make it work all out. Or you can respond and melt into whining, complaining, overwhelmed, infantile responses that leave us paralyzed. I have done both. I recommend neither. Rebellious runaways or whining babies. Not good. And we have no lack of counsel in our culture to encourage us those directions, right? No lack of counsel encouraging us to go that way. We can choose to respond like David, humbly, childlike, trusting, restful, patient, knowing that God is going to bring security, hope, and help. He is going to bring hope. And that brings us to our final point, the hope that endures. This psalm has helped us focus where it should be. Help us bring the focus where it should be to hope. Our hope is not... It tells us where our hope is not to be. It's not to be in ourselves. Proud, overreaching hearts. Or constantly looking out there in the world for things that will satisfy. It's not letting your questions cripple God's omniscience. Let me say that again. It's, it's to not allow your questions to cripple God's omniscience and His sovereignty. And yet that's what we're so prone to do. Elevate our own hearts and thinking above trusting that God knows what He's doing. So what is our focus? It's a logical conclusion to being adopted as children of God. Hope. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Look at verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord. This is David's solution. Hoping in God. Another translation says it this way. Wait, Israel, for God. Wait with hope. Hope now. Hope always. Again, like David, the sighing and this pleading, just like we see Have at the beginning. I just see, I feel this in the same way. Oh, Israel. Oh, God. Oh, church. Hope in the Lord. 
David didn't come to this hope by accident. It was the various dealings in his life that drew him to this place. The guy that wrote this psalm, it didn't come out of nothing. It didn't just come out of anywhere. It came from a heart severely dealt with by God. And you may be thinking, wow, is that what the Christian life is? <laughs> and, and I would say, yep. That's what the Christian life is. But it's a life filled with hope because it doesn't rest in me. It rests in the sovereign God who is over all our lives. We choose how we will deal with life's situations and challenges. We'll either whine and complain or we'll rest and trust childlike in God. Israel, he's calling Israel to renounce all their boasting and self-sufficiency. And he's calling them to hope in God alone. Not a passive, hand-wringing, nervous, fidgeting effort to buck yourself up or make yourself believe something. This is a settled, restful, humble expectation in a God you know and trust. And this usually takes a lot of time. Because we're born into the kingdom as babes. We are adopted as children into the family. And then we come finally to this last word in the text. As we see there in the last verse of our text. Forevermore. Now the word forevermore has some serious implications to it. It's a prophetic reference to the one who will sit on the throne of David forever. It's a prophetic reference to Jesus Christ who will sit on this throne forever. So we come full circle back to the heart of the king. But in this case, it's a different king. It's an eternal king. It's the king who came and subjected himself to the most intense persecution and injustice any human being has ever experienced on the face of the earth. Do you feel like you're experiencing injustice and persecution and challenges in your life? Or do you feel like that professor at school is just getting in your face? If you're at a public school, public university, you got professors who are in your face who do not like you and they do not like what you believe and they're going to be challenging you. What do you do in the face of that? Well, one of the things you can do is come back to the good news of the gospel. That's who Jesus was. Jesus experienced that persecution. Jesus experienced all those things like us. He experienced the most egregious forms of injustice. Yet he refused to grasp. Like David, he refused to grasp. Philippians 2 said he didn't grasp his equality with God as something that, that, he, that was rightly his, but he let it go. And he became, took on the form of a man. God himself, as we're about to celebrate in a couple months, took on the form of a man. But that wasn't enough. He took on the form of a servant. But that wasn't enough. He took on the form of one crucified on a cross. Destroyed. Crucified. Rejected in the most brutal fashion that can be imagined. Even if you were to imagine something in our day and age, it couldn't get any worse than the cross was 
for Jesus. See, life, life as a Christian, Jesus said, take up your cross once a year and follow me. Is that what he said? Take up your cross at least monthly. No, Take up your cross once a week. That, that'll be sufficient. Now, what did he say? Take up your cross. Oh, come on. Take up your cross daily and follow me. This is what we're being called to. A life of dying to self. Now, we're not, most of us, probably, although some people in the world experience this. We're, we're, we're not ever going to experience that kind of a thing. But we are to die to ourselves for His sake. Refuse to, be, refuse to be proud, but made Himself a servant. Listen, how can we have any hope before a holy God, a righteous God, only in the sure knowledge that a Savior has purchased for us our forgiveness through the cross, can we stand before this perfect, righteous, and holy God? This is hope. We have in Christ all hope because He has paid it all. All to Him I owe. Because Jesus Christ died for you, you have confidence. Because Christ died for you, you have no fear. Because Christ died for you, you have assurance and safety. Because Christ is now alive, you have hope, no matter what the year has been like. Because God is sovereign. Because of Jesus, you're adopted as children. Your soul is the soul of an adopted child. If you come by faith today in the finished work of Jesus Christ, this gives us true hope. Now, there are, in conclusion, there are situations that defy explanation. No doubt. Conditions for which there is no obvious solution they seem so profound and complex. At times, life is such that you, you, you just can't control what's going on. We're tempted to whine and sulk, or we can look in humility to God. Then there's those times when we know that God's at work with us, dealing with things in our hearts for years. The things that we know about ourselves that we wish were different but we haven't changed fully yet. We know that God is at work, so let Him work. Don't resist the discipline of God. Let Him work. Allow Him to bring change. Rest and trust. When your soul is stirred up to respond in all the old ways, rest, trust, hope. Psalm 31 is here, given to us by God through David to stir these things in our hearts, to bring maturity and help. So what is it causing you to strive today or want to take control or manipulate life, personal or corporately? What are we struggling with with the Father? These are all manifestations of our own need that God is dealing with and wanting to draw out. Where are we lifting our eyes to? What revelation or immaturity is God dealing with? Do you have doubts and questions this morning? Do you feel like faith is being stretched to the breaking point at times? Psalm 131. Calm your heart before the Lord. Rest and trust in Him. Let 
hope take a hold of your soul. You are a people journeying up to worship. We're all on a journey, aren't we? We're all heading, we're all heading to heaven. We're on a journey to the great Jerusalem. We have a playlist given to us. And that playlist, as we sing these songs, as you sing this song to each other as you're on your way, listen, what the gospel tells us here is so, so critical that you understand this reality in your life. The gospel is real. It affects every, the death and resurrection of Jesus affect every aspect of your life. You don't walk out this room and go to school and suddenly it's not relevant. No, this is the relevant thing in our lives as we apply it to our hearts and to our lives. And you need each other to be encouraging each other in these things because you're all going to face many... You think that challenges have been tough and that life's going to get better now? Well, you don't... (laughs) You probably will go through some good seasons, but I'm, I'm prophesying now. You're going to go through some more difficult seasons. It's just going to happen because the Father's not done with you yet. The Father's got so much more for you, so much more He wants to accomplish in your heart personally, so much He wants you to accomplish in this church for the sake of the gospel together. So go up and worship. Go up and Encourage one another as you ascend to worship this great God. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, I thank you for this church as I have this privilege to be here today and I have this wonderful opportunity to see the church in action, see people serving you. See people laying down their lives for your namesake. See people going through difficulties and maturing and growing and being willing to trust you even when everything within them says, I don't get it. Lord, thank you that your grace is there for them. Thank you that your mercy is new every morning. Lord, I pray as they wake up tomorrow, that they will recognize the first thought in their mind will be your grace is sufficient. Your mercy is new every morning. Lord, we love you. I know you love this people. Lord, may they experience your favor, your grace, and your growth as they look to the future. Be glorified, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I know that some of you here hear this psalm and think that uh, you might as well be asked to walk on water. That the idea of being this content and rested in the Lord for you right now feels like a feat that is beyond your capacity. As we celebrate 15 years, I will tell you that I have looked at this church as a bit of an outside observer and thought, what's, what's happened here? How has the Lord blessed this church in the way that it has blessed this church? One of the things I see, and they don't get any of the credit, they don't want any of the credit, but I see these original families being taught the same lesson at the same time, and that was, these other people are not going to make you happy. These other people aren't the answer 
this this church that you're hoping to, to see planted isn't isn't going to make you happy. There was this consistent turning of hearts back to the Father as the only source of contentment and the only source of fulfillment. So that even in these, you know, germinating days of this church plant, when all tendencies point toward hoping in the creation of this perfect church that's somehow going to scratch the itch, right, and somehow going to help me grow in Jesus, there was this sense that the Lord was teaching in those early days that kept pushing these families back on God. So that even in their conversations with each other, those conversations were often pushing back on God. Not, let me be more for you, but the Lord is enough for you. That psalm, Psalm 131, is written about a man who has found the ability to be satisfied in God's sovereignty. And what Lynn was saying uh, is, is that there's a subtle turn that takes place. And right now, if you're struggling to be satisfied in God's sovereignty, struggling to feel as if he is enough, here's the turn that needs to take place in your heart, probably for the millionth time. There's a very big difference between God is between saying God is sovereign and saying my father is sovereign. From saying God is over all to saying my father is over all. The one who loves me. The one who gave his son for me. So as I introduce the table, I say to those of you who are struggling to find satisfaction in God that what you need to hear this morning is is that you have a father who made a way for you to sit at his table forever that you don't have a god who is sovereign you have a dad who is sovereign a perfect father who loves you perfectly in a way that no other human being ever will be able to love you in isaiah 55 the lord the father calls out and says come everyone who thirsts come to the waters and he who has no money come and buy and eat Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they'd eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This table represents the price that the Father paid to be your Father to be your full satisfaction, to be your anchor in every storm, to be the only thing that truly satisfies you. This is the initiation of an eternal feast that all who are in Christ will partake of, where everything in your heart that longs for hope and satisfaction and joy, it's all going to be fulfilled in Him. He's going to be the feast. 
And so this feast set before us is just a, an appetizer, just, a, just an initiation into an eternal feast in the kingdom. If you're here today and you're struggling with this, man, I'll tell you, don't, don't beat yourself up over it. I, I'm, I'm here with you. I struggle to find my satisfaction in God's sovereignty and not in how I'm doing professionally or how I'm doing financially or how my marriage is doing or how good of a father I am. I struggle with all those things too. That's why I need this consistently to remind me that the feast that my heart really longs for, it's already been prepared. So this morning, I pray that you will see that at some point in your life, Jesus has come to you and offered himself to you, that you understand that your sins brought Jesus to the cross, that Jesus had to die to save you from your wickedness, from your waywardness. And understand that he did that to bring you into the household of the one who would bring you total and complete satisfaction. If that's your story, if you remember that, if that's happened to you, I want to invite you to partake in this table this morning. Come.